Holy Father, this is your message, defined by you, given to us. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would anoint me to give it. That I would be able to go beyond my own mere human intellect, to be able to give something that comes straight from your throne room. Lord, I need what you have to offer. And I pray that you would fill me with your grace and with your strength to be able to articulate what heaven understands and what heaven knows. Lord Jesus, may you become large, magnified in our midst. May you be high and lifted up. It's in the precious name of our King Jesus that we ask that. Amen. I had a different message that I was going to give, which I prepared all week long. And then this morning, I decided that wasn't what I was going to give, and, uh, which left me about 10, 15 minutes. Uh, you know, there's, there's always a great test that God has with me. And sometimes one of the great things he trains me through is the preparation of messages. Because I, he, he basically says, Eric, prepare. But always be malleable to let go of everything I give you. Maybe I'm just giving it to you for you. Not so that you, because one of the lessons you learn as a communicator is you're not allowed to study the word of God for other people. You're supposed to study the word of God for you to be built up and edified by it. And then communication of the gospel is supposed to be the overflow of what God is doing in your life. It's not supposed to be a flow through where you don't catch it, but you give it to everyone else, and there you live some depraved, ridiculous, idiotic existence while everyone else is built up in the strength and the admonition of the Lord, which, unfortunately, a few people follow that model in Christendom today, but we don't want to do that here. And as a result, there's a high responsibility on my part in this little gathering that when I study, I'm studying to first and foremost encounter Jesus Christ for myself, to be in, marked with integrity before the Word of God with myself. And that one of the th- ways God tests me with that is I study, 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 and then he says, no, not that message. Well, wait a minute, God, we only have 15 minutes here. Uh, and he's, he sort of waits to the last minute and then pulls the rug out and then says, do you trust me? And out pops this. In literally a matter of minutes, this message came together this morning because my prayer was to God, God, I need something that flows out of what you've been doing in my life. Well, this is it. How the message is going to come together, that's part of the excitement of when God puts together a message. Now, you need to realize there's a bit of trepidation on my part because I, I like to give things that I'm thoroughly prepared for. And the funny way about how God builds a message is he builds a man, then the message is supposed to come out. And I, Some of you have heard my quote that I, I literally have quoted for 20 years. This was my 20-year spiritual anniversary. It was February 2nd of this year. And the quote is, it takes 20 years to write a sermon because it takes 20 years to make a man. And so in many ways, this, is, this isn't the 20-year uh, message, but this has been a four-year message. Uh, this has been something God has been cultivating within my life for the past four years intensively. Intensive boot camp training in this message. And it comes out, you've heard me say certain things that are going to come out uh, tonight, but I'm going to get very specific on the fact of praying, praying specifics. Because when we talk about praying, prayer is a huge topic. And if you ever read the complete works of E.M. Bounds, you realize prayer is a huge topic because the book is thick. And it seems like every new chapter he has, he has a new angle on something. How in the world does this guy write so much on prayer? Because prayer is a monstrous topic. It is huge, just like marriage. You could say, well, marriage, what is there to know? You serve one another, you're nice to one another, you forgive, you know, is there anything else to say? Marriage needs an encyclopedia 
to attend it. And it's the same thing with, with prayer. It's supposed to be such an integral part of our life that as a result, there's a lot of nuance to it. It's not just something like dinner prayer. If, we just, if that's all prayer was, is for dinner, well, then it probably would be a pretty thin book. You know, it's like, okay, and when it's meatloaf, you want to pray this way. When company is over, then you fold your hands, you know, but when they're not, you don't need to worry about that. Dinner prayer is a funny thing. If you ever analyze it, it's like, who came up with dinner prayer? Uh, I think it's a great concept in theory. As long as you're authentic and genuinely communicating to God when you pray at dinner. Because technically what you're supposed to be doing is thanking him for what you have in front of you. And I think it's a great opportunity to remember who he is. I remember uh, my sister and I decided that we were going to add a little something to every time we sat down to pray for dinner. And that we were going to proclaim to the heavenlies. Because all throughout the day we have a tendency to lose contact with God. This is a very common thing in our culture because our culture is very busy. It's blurry. And so we have our moments when we see clearly and we have God and he's in our sights and then we get busy. And then we're like, oh, I forgot about you. And then we get connected again. And so my sister and I, this is, you know, a long time ago, uh, 17, 18 years ago, we were talking about the fact that we're supposed to be more continuous in our connectivity with God. And so what is one thing in our day that is frequent? Meals. And so let's use that as our opportunity to reestablish a clear connection. And so we were going to declare to the heavenlies God's all uh, sufficiency and his preeminence over all things on planet Earth. Every time. So we could constantly be remembering that simple truth. So every time we'd have a meal, we'd thank him for them. Sometimes we'd forget to thank him because we'd be like, you're preeminent over all matters, sovereign over all things, in control of all things. We'd make our little statement, and then we'd start eating. Uh, and so you can use dinner prayer any way you want. But the, the manual would be very thin, in other words. It's not what prayer is really all about. Prayer is for every moment of every day, every occasion, every circumstance. There is a model for prayer. So let's, uh, let's dig down into this. Just the concept of the word specifics. When you get to the word specific and you mention prayer, we start to get a little uncomfortable. And it's not, you know, I want you just to know, it's not bad that you're a little disturbed by the fact that, well, if I pray specifics, why is it that people say you shouldn't pray specifics? You know that people actually teach that? You shouldn't pray specific prayers. Because if you get too specific, what happens? Well, then God doesn't answer your specific prayer, and then what happens to your faith? It's shattered against the rocks of disappointment. So here's the solution. Don't pray specific prayers, and guess what? You won't be disappointed and disillusioned when God, quote-unquote, doesn't come through. Well, that starts with a presupposition. I know it's a big word, but a thought before a thought, and that is that God is going to disappoint, that God won't prove faithful to prayer, and he won't be a, prove himself to be a prayer-answering God. If you start with that as your presupposition or your thought before your thought, in other words, your, your, your stage on which you're, you're doing your drama of life, that God doesn't answer prayer, and you have to be very cautious with God because, you know, he used to answer prayer way back in the day. But now, you know, he got tired of it. You know, it's a lot of work for God to be answering prayer. Could you imagine? There's billions of people on earth, and if all of them prayed at once, how is he going to tune into all of them and answer them all? This is complicated. And so let's give God a break in this generation. You know, let's just assume that he's taken this generation off because obviously, look at the church today, and people are praying, aren't they? Okay, I'd like to start with a different baseline or presupposition, and that is God does answer prayer. How do I know that? Because he says he does. 
He promises, you see me building up for a statement, he promises that he answers prayer and he cannot lie. So therefore, we have a legal hold on the fact that he is a prayer-answering God. He has committed himself and his nature is inviolable on that point that he must be a prayer-answering God to you. And so if you pray in concert with his recipe for prayer as outlined in Scripture, or the pattern as outlined in Scripture, you are guaranteed that your answers, your prayers will be answered. Now, of course, I have to put the caveat in that there are prayers that God doesn't answer. And those are prayers, as outlined in Scripture, when I say the pattern, well, there's a pattern for prayer. Because God, Jesus does something that makes us all get a little uncomfortable. And as he says, whatsoever you ask in my name. They're like, oh, great. That's going to get all those people going after the weird prayers. Okay, as I want to be seven foot seven. God, make me seven foot seven. And then we add, in the name of Jesus. And we think that now he has to answer that prayer. The whatsoever, and I've said this to many of you, you've heard me ramble on this many times, but the point is, in the Old Testament, the Old Testament is the pattern for the New Testament, but everything in the Old Testament is outward. It's external. And then in the New Testament, all these things from the temple to the sacrifice to the the, the bread that came down from heaven, all of these things become internal. They're answered in Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ takes this, and instead of us moving into a promised land in the land of Canaan, he makes this the promised land. This is the territory of conquest. The Ark of the Covenant is actually in the real temple known as the human body. Do you not know that you are the temple of the living God, says Paul, quote-unquote? You become the temple. It's not built with human hands. It's now constructed by the Spirit of God Almighty. So all these things that were external become internal. And so all of these truths that we are uh, batting around in the Old Testament, the promised land becomes the territory of God. And that promised land is the very thing it says, promise. God has given us promises in his word, great and precious promises. Most of us don't know what those promises are, and as a result, we need to have a message very soon called promises. And we'll start going through the promises, because I know some of you are getting mad at me. It's like, you keep talking about all these promises. There's hundreds of them. You keep talking about it, Eric, and you're expecting me to go dig them up? Well, I sort of am expecting you to go dig them up. I I keep inspiring you, uh, but I probably need to give you a little start. Uh, So that'll be up and coming. And now someone needs to hold me to that. Eric, you promised. Now, So the promised land in the Old Testament is now the promises as purchased on the cross of Christ in the New Testament. In other words, it's not just anything. He didn't promise to be, that we would be seven foot seven, but he did promise that we could be triumphant over our sin and over the petty issues that hold us down. He did promise that our joy would be full. He did promise that our peace would pass all understanding, that it would be incomprehensible how it works, but he would govern our heart and our soul and keep us in perfect stability. These are promises, and you can take them to the bank. I know you, you can't pray that you could be seven foot seven. See, it says you ask and you receive not. Because you're, you ask amiss. You're asking to spend it on your own fleshly desires. It doesn't work that way. That's not part of the promised land. That's like trying to conquer Japan. The Israelites going in and, you know, taking on Japan. He's like, oh, hey, guys, I defined the territory over here. It's the Jordan River to the Euphrates to the Great Sea. That's the promised territory. When you go over here and start asking to be seven foot seven, you're not in my promised land. Okay, so if you want to pray specifics, let's make, Sure, you know one very important thing. 
that you're in the promised land. And when you're in that promised land, you can ask. And you can ask boldly. And you can be assured that your God doesn't just hear, but he responds. And that is an extraordinary thing that very few in our generation have ever grasped a hold of. I'm going to attempt to walk through very briefly here a little personal history. It's dangerous to do, but a little personal history in regards to this. Because to be honest, I have always had this truth to a degree. Prayer has always been something that I would have said is the foundation of any ministry. When I was studying in missionary school, you know, 20 years ago or so, I, I remember someone teaching me, he said, if you want to start a ministry, you pray. If you want to keep a ministry going, you pray. If you want to, if you want to see a ministry flourish 20 years from now, you pray the entire time. The moment you unplug from prayer as your power source is the moment your ministry begins to turn upside down and not work. It goes belly up spiritually. So pray. That's always been my mentality. So it's not that I haven't had this in my thinking, but something happened four years ago, and I would almost describe it as God brought us to the point of saying, prove it. You believe that prayer is what makes it work. Don't you, Eric? Oh, absolutely. Then why don't you pray more? Well, you know, you have a lot of things in life. But you're saying, Eric, that when you study my word, it seems that everything that is going to be constructed and built is done through prayer. Well, why don't you pray? Build your life around prayer instead of trying to fit prayer in around the edges. So the first thing I began to realize when I began to pray was I had no clue really how to pray. My version of prayer was modeled after what I'd seen around me. And let's be honest, it's not that impressive in our generation. So have you noticed that we tend to pray like other people in the church? You know, we repeat the name of God a lot when we pray. Father God, Almighty God, uh, Lord. Could you imagine me talking to Leslie that way? Leslie, I love you, Leslie. Uh, thank you. How you doing, Leslie? Uh, good morning, Leslie. Are you brushing your teeth now, Leslie? Seem a little strange, but that, we, there's nothing wrong with saying the name of God a lot. I'm just saying it's funny how we come up with our, our framework of prayer based on what we've witnessed. And that's fine. That's how we learn as little kids. We watch our parents. So if they do something a certain way or when we're in the church, we model after certain things. And I would like to not poke a hole in that because I think that's perfectly fine. But I'd like us to realize that oftentimes we diminish and we don't see fully how prayer works because we're limited to our experience around us. We can read the Word of God and be inspired but we've never seen it modeled. We've never seen people wrestle for truth to the point to pray until they see it happen, to not let go. It'd be a very interesting thing to be raised around. I mean, I'm hoping that Hudson and Harper and Kipling and Avonlea are going to see that in their father, that they say, well, weren't you praying for that? Absolutely, and I still am. And I'm not letting go until we see it realized. And then when they see it, they go, wow, that works. Prayer works. I know that that's one of those common statements, prayer works, to the point where we don't hear it anymore. It's like one of those statements, kids grow up fast. And all, when, we're, when we're young, we're, we hear that comment all the time. Because everyone's always saying it to us. Oh, kids grow up so fast. Our parents say it all the time. And then you get married, you have kids, and suddenly you're saying it. Oh, kids grow up so fast. It means something to you now. That's the same thing. You can hear prayer works, but it means nothing to you unless, until you realize it for yourself. And suddenly you find yourself saying the same words. Wow, prayer works. It's such a stupid statement. Of course, prayer works. 
but you sh you're shocked by the reality that prayer actually works. Prayer doesn't just change your life, it changes the lives of those around you. And when you employ it in your life with vigorous attentiveness, it changes things. It works on planet Earth. I had a guy come up to me who, it wasn't really a discipleship relationship, it was like a quasi-discipleship relationship where I saw him like once every couple months. But he always wanted input, and he, he didn't mind if I spoke straight to him. And I'd just given a message where I was talking about praying specifically. It wasn't this message, it was a different sort of angle on it. And he said, I've always been taught that I wasn't supposed to pray specifically. Isn't that an interesting thing? Taught that you're not supposed to pray specifically. And he said, is it all right? I mean, I'm scared to death to do it. Why are we scared to death? We know. Because we're afraid of losing the little thin strand of faith that holds us to God that we already have. I would like to give you the secret to strengthen that little thin strand. Pray specifically. Because as long as you hold on to that little thin strand and say, oh, I don't want to test it. I just, it's holding me up right now and it's going to carry me to heaven. If we never do anything with that strand other than just guard it and protect it, and we never implement faith, we'll never strengthen it. It's like the, the guy that had the talent, and he buried it. Well, guess what? When God came back, when Jesus came back, he's like, what did you do with my talent? What would you do with your thin strand? You start with a thin strand. Every single one of us does. We start, and we're connected to God. We see it. It's real. It's like an umbilical cord. And we're getting nourishment through it, but we're like, hey, we don't want to cut that thing. You know, we want to be very careful with this. That's my nourishment. We need to invest what God has given us. And God has given us maybe a thin strand, maybe just a penny. You spend it on Jesus Christ. If he says he can do it, if he promises, then you say, you know what? I believe you. And you put it all in on Jesus. That's all you had. All you had was that penny. Where'd you get the penny from in the first place? From him. He's the one who awakened you and gave you the penny. You're like, is that all you're giving me? He says, invest it. Prove it. Prove your faith. Stick it all in. On, and you're in a poker game. You stick in your one penny. Everyone's sort of chuckling at you. It's like, hey, it's all I have. You stick it in, and guess what happens? Ten cents comes back to you. You're looking around, and you're like, wow. But then the first thing, the first instinct you will have is to protect your ten cents. Now all I have is ten cents. I don't want to lose my ten cents. That's a lot. We do it all the time. It's a weird phenomenon. But we see God prove himself faithful. The next thing you know, we try and barricade ourselves. Because now we feel stronger. We feel a little more stable. We're no longer doubting the existence of God. Now we're just doubting his ability to continually answer prayer. It's so funny. The disciples see Jesus Christ multiply the fishes and the loaves twice to feed 4,000 and 5,000. That's just the men. Okay, he's taking these little meals and multiplying them to feed countless thousands, and they're in the boat, and they forget their lunches, and they're so concerned that Jesus is going to rebuke them about forgetting their lunches, and he's like, hey, don't you guys realize that the same God who did that is with you now? Why is it that you think I'm suddenly limited in my ability? We have this concept. It's like God only has a certain allotment of miraculous power, of prayer answering stuff, and so we can't use it up. And so if we get something that happens this week or this month, you know, God came through for us. Well, he might have spent his wad. You know, he doesn't have any more prayer answering stuff left. So he sort of needs to build it up. I don't know where these thoughts come from, but we have weird mentalities when it comes to trusting our God. He can do something great today, and the next thing you know, we're trembling at the thought of being specific in another prayer. What God has done with me 
It, the first thing I started with four years ago was I, I started with, God, I don't know how to pray. Teach me to pray. God took me through sort of a boot camp. I would encourage you to go through this boot camp. God doesn't just take Eric Ludy through it. He'll take anyone that wants to learn how to pray through it. God, teach me how to pray. Just that simple thing. Teach me how to pray. Because I read these stories, say Reese Howells, who spent, I think it was 11 months praying, I don't know, 13 hours a day? Well, it was a long time, each day for 11 months to pray for a Bible college. That light was deeply convicting. It's like, whoa, we're trying to get this Bible college. 13 hours a day? Whoa! Here's my thought that goes through my head. What in the world is he doing for those 13 hours? See, I, I know how to fill, and this would shock some of you, I know how to fill three hours, even five hours in prayer. Done it many times. And you can say, what are you doing for three to five hours? Well, that's what I'm thinking about Reese Howells. Going, what are you doing for 13 hours? Okay, but when I first started, I had no idea to, what to do for an hour. Okay, how did I learn this? By God training me. What do you say, the same thing over and over again? These are exactly my thoughts. So, so I, do I come in and go, hi, Jesus. Uh, <clears throat> well, I'm here and I'm praying for this. All right, I'm asking for it again. All right, we've passed uh, 15 seconds. Uh, all right, uh, here I am again, and my name's Eric Ludy, and uh, I'm praying this prayer again. It's a good question. How do you do this? What does it look like? Ask God to begin to train you. The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead supposedly dwells in you, and you know what that spirit is? He's the spirit of prayer as well. Not just the spirit of holiness, not just the spirit of love, not just the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. He's the spirit of prayer. And God is wanting to pray through his saints. And he has prayers that he wants you to begin to wrestle for. They're his prayers, not yours. We think that prayer is supposed to originate in us. And so we're like, oh, what's a good prayer? Prayer originates in God's heart and mind. And when we yield ourselves to him, he gives us these prayers. And they're precious treasures. They're burdens that you feel a weight upon your soul. Suddenly you care about this life that you didn't even think about before. And you care about their salvation. You care about their circumstance. You care about their situation, their disease, their infirmity, whatever it is. You care. You don't know why. But you asked God to train you to pray. And he trains this way. And suddenly you have this weight upon your soul. That's why it's in, the, in, in his Christian history it's called a burden, a burden of prayer. I don't know if that's the greatest description of it, but it's pretty good. That's what you feel. And if you've never felt that before, come to God and say, God, begin to give me your burdens. And you know when you have a God burden. Because you can pray. You care. You care deeply. And then he says, don't let that burden go. Steward that. If God gave you $100, and he says, this is mine, could you take care of it for me? Well, don't let it just fall. Maybe I should use a different illustration. Imagine that you received an entire handful of precious, precious jewels, okay? And they're like so rare. And they came from like some king's court hundreds of years ago. And someone hands them to you in a little bag, and says, could you hold these in your coat pocket? Well, then you feel sort of awkward carrying these things around. But you would be thinking about them. You'd be caring for them. You wouldn't just, you know, huck them into the river. It's like, yeah, I'm looking for some rocks to throw into the river. Oh, oh yeah, I have that bag of jewels. <sighs> Why wouldn't you do that? Because you know the value of what you have. And a burden from God is valuable. In other words, we treat it so lightly. It's like, oh, yeah, I had that yesterday. God, if he really cares about it, can give it back to me again today. No, when God gives you something, you hold on to it. You protect it. You put garrisons about it so you will not lose it. You will not forsake it. You will not accidentally throw it into the lake forgetting that it was a jewel and thinking it's a rock. You will treasure these things. That is specifics. 
God has specifics for every single one of you, and he can give them to you tonight. Specifics. Sometimes it's a specific sin issue in your life. Let's just deal with it. Get specific about it. Don't just say, God, help me to be better. Say, this is getting me down. Every time I rise, I find pride. It's so thick within me that every time someone corrects me, anytime I, I'm challenged at any point, I spew back at them. This is an issue. Well, let's deal with it. God has exposed it to you. You see it because not everyone that has pride sees it. If you see it, go after it. It's part of the promised land. Sometimes it's someone specific in your life. It's someone that you have very near and dear to you that doesn't know Jesus Christ. And God's given you a burden. You care. And you're like, well, I don't know if I should pray because I don't know if God really wants to save them. You care. You're a Christian. You pray. In other words, God has given you a burden. It's not an accident. It's, well, well, I'm related to them. Yeah, God puts you in their life. He maybe is after that life, and he puts you there so that he could get it. Go after it. Whatever that burden is, it could take on a thousand shades. A thousand? How about a million shades? There are so many different things that a burden could be. I had a burden that we needed to go after this school, this campus. Yes, it was an impossibility. I don't know if I've ever shared the story in, in totality. I'm not going to tonight. But I, we knew that we were supposed to begin to move forward in going after property for what we're doing at Ellerslie. We didn't know where. This was right down the road. And the first time I ever saw this property, to be honest, I wasn't that impressed with it. They've done a lot of work to it since I first looked at it. But it was sort of dingy. Didn't smell that nice. And I wasn't that impressed. And my first thought was we could build it uh, one a lot better than this. Probably cheaper, too, because the price tag they had on it was a lot higher than even what it is now. A lot higher. And so I was just sort of like shrugging it off. Well, then God, somehow in this process, he'd already exposed me to it. It's like, that's where I want you to go after. I want you to go after this campus. And so he started to give me a burden for it. We would stand out here. I don't know if anyone else here, I don't know if Ben was a part of that. I know Annie was. But we would literally stand out right here, circle uh, of, what, 15, 20 people at times, and we would pray for this campus. Over and over and over and over, years passed stories that are just hilarious, truly. You know, where someone would come in to buy it. We had this Korean group that was coming in to buy it, and we prayed that it would fall through. And it came up to the last day. No one ever told us, but it fell through. So we went through the whole summer thinking the Koreans had it, and we were still standing for it. Little did we know it had fallen through the whole summer. One of the people from our group came in and said, you know what, because the school was supposed to have started, no one's there at the campus. It's like a ghost town. So I checked into it. Sure enough, no one had it. It was still available. This is extraordinary. We began praying again all intensely. The story has been amazing. It's been, I think we're closing on four years of going after this property. Right about the time when we will have our first session here, it'll be about four years. It's a specific prayer. We went after it, and there was times, I, I remember when someone did come in and buy it. It's the current owner now. And it was a, it was a tremendous challenge to my soul. Do I let go, or do I keep holding on? Because I feel like God has said, go after this property. I don't know. I mean, how does this work? I'm learning. And so after all this time, here we are with that owner coming to us saying, I really want you to have it. It's been an amazing process. It's been beautiful to watch how God has done this. And he says, grab a hold of it and don't let go. And it doesn't just mean for one day. It doesn't mean just for one week. It doesn't just mean for four years sometimes. Sometimes it's your entire life. But you grab a hold of God's promises and you don't let go. All right, let's read something out of Scripture. This is in 1 Samuel 1, the story of Hannah. Remember, Hannah is the mother of Samuel. 
the great prophet of old, one of the most amazing men in the Bible. And I call this little subsection the spiritual adversary. And I think you'll, you, I don't know if you'll catch it just when I read it, but we'll go back to that title and I think it'll make sense. Now, if you see any dot, dot, dots, that's because I'm trimming down some of his uh, genealogy because it's quite uh, extensive uh, for this guy named Elkanah. Now, there was a certain man, and his name was Elkanah, and he had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Peninnah, and Peninnah had children, key point, but Hannah had no children, and when the time was that Elkanah offered, he he goes to the temple uh, all the time and offers, and so when the time came that Elkanah offered, he gave to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and her daughters portions, but unto Hannah he gave a worthy portion, for he loved Hannah, but the Lord had shut up her womb, key line. And her adversary, speaking of Peninnah, as her adversary, also provoked her sore for to make her fret because the Lord had shut up her womb. And as he did so year by year, when she went up to the house of the Lord, so she provoked her. Therefore she wept and did not eat. Then said Elkanah to her, her husband to her, Hannah, why weepest thou? And why eatest thou not? And why is thy heart grieved? Am I not better than thee, than ten, to thee than ten sons? So Hannah rose up after, the, after they had eaten in Shiloh and after they had drunk, and she was in bitterness of soul and prayed unto the Lord and wept sore. And she vowed a vow. I want you to just hold on to some of these things. Whenever I say that's important, I'm going to come back to all these things. She vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if thou wilt indeed look on the affliction of thine handmaid and remember me and not forget thine handmaid, but wilt give unto thine handmaid a man-child, then I will give, unto, give him unto the Lord all the days of his life, and there shall no razor come upon his head. So basically, in summary, God, I'm vowing to you that if you give me a son, I will give him back to you all the days of his life. He will be yours, not mine. And no razor will touch his head. In other words, he'll be a Nazarite. He'll be set apart. That's the term, set apart, holy unto the Lord. God, he belongs to God. And it came to pass as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli marked her mouth. In other words, he saw her mouth moving, her lips moving. Now Hannah, she spoke in her heart, only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli thought she had been drunken. And Eli said unto her, How long wilt thou be drunken? Put away thy wine from thee. And Hannah answered and said, No, my Lord, I'm a woman of a sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but have poured out my soul before the Lord. Count not thine handmaid for a, a daughter of Belial, for out of the abundance of my complaint and grief have I spoken hitherto. Then Eli answered and said, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant thee thy petition that thou hast asked of him. And she said, Let thine handmaid find grace in thy sight. So the woman went her way and did eat, and her countenance was no more sad. And they rose up in the morning early and worshipped before the Lord and returned and came to their house to Ramah. And Elkanah knew his, Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. Wherefore it came to pass, when the time was come about after Hannah had conceived, that she bare a son and called his name Samuel, saying, Because I asked him of the Lord. Okay, now that seems like nice history. It's an incredible story to see what this woman went through, how much she desired a son. It's interesting, but there, and you'll see it on the next page without, don't peek though. I just saw Sandy uh, turn the page to peek. Uh, one of the things I'm going to cover is the fact that this concept of shut up, that her womb was shut up. It's interesting that throughout Hebrew history, so many of the most important men in all of history, in God's history, came from women whose wombs were shut up. Now what's interesting is in Deuteronomy, which is before this scene here, 
God promises his people that if they live rightly, if they live in accordance with the pattern as detailed in the law and the pattern as described by Moses of how the people of Israel to live, that they should put no other gods before them, that they should live in accordance with his commands and his law, then it will go well with them and they will have fruit of their womb. They will have children, plentiful children. In fact, there will be no miscarriage, that their, their, their horses, their livestock will have children, will have uh, offspring. I guess you don't call them children. Uh, but they will be fruitful, okay? This is a promise, Yet, what we see is all throughout the lineage, there's all this barrenness in the land. All the women, well, not all of them, but a significant number of them have a shut-up womb. What in the world is that for? Now, think about this. Now, there's two different ways I could analyze this, but one of my basic premises when I, when I approach Scripture is that all Scripture pertains to doctrine. It's helpful and it's useful for doctrine, which is how we comprehend Christ and how we model Christ, how we live out Christ in us, in this life. Well, how in the world does this affect us at all? It's interesting because there's this man, and he's a good man, a godly man, Elkanah, and he has two wives. And one is an adversary with the other. Now, we could look at this as flesh versus spirit. The flesh, which is your life, has plenty of fruit, and it bears it all the time. It doesn't seem to have any problem bearing fruit. Yet your spirit life is just sort of withered up. And it's frustrating. I don't know if any of you have gotten frustrated with the fact that it's very easy for one side of your existence to produce all sorts of fruit. And of course, it's not the fruit you're looking for. It's the wrong spouse. Yeah, that's not the spouse I want producing fruit. Elkanah favors Hannah. But for some reason, she's not bearing children. Well, does that sound like your life at all? In other words, there's something that you desire. Now, shouldn't you just be satisfied? You have Elkanah, you have Jesus. Isn't that, a, he's worth 10 sons. It's an interesting statement. You have Jesus, isn't that enough for you? And you could say, he's enough, sure. But I want to bear fruit for him. I want to show forth my love to him. I want to carry on his name in this world. There is something missing in this package this isn't how life is supposed to be. It's supposed to work differently than this. And many of us, this is our Christian experience. We are barren spiritually. We, we have Elkanah. We have Jesus. We have a good husband. And he favors us. He doesn't favor the flesh, which seems he favors us. But we long to be fruitful for him. We long to show forth the life of Christ on this earth. To have his lineage carry on. His name propagated. There's another side to this that we could look at, and that is that there's the fact of the matter, the, the natural realm, and it's very real to us. In fact, uh, Penina, her name means jewel, and then Hannah means grace. It's a spiritual jewel, and spiritual strength and earthly strength. The jewel is a commodity in this natural world that can be transacted and traded, and it's very easy in the natural realm to put all our chips there. But when we turn our, our, our attention towards the spiritual realm, to the grace, we don't seem productive. Either way, look at it. It's the same principle. If there's a part of us that's the spiritual dimension, the grace part of us, that isn't functioning the way God promised. In Deuteronomy, there was a promise given to the people of Israel, and for whatever reason, Hannah is barren. This isn't right. And it's not right that you're barren because there is a promise from heaven that you will bear fruit. You will bear much fruit if you abide in him. So what should you do if you're barren? 
Because this is the funny thing, is your experience, just like Penina, will mock you. It's an adversary. Your flesh will mock you. It will whisper to you, you're not going to ever have any fruit. It's even coming from inside of you. It's not even demonic. You have a part of you that mocks you. It looks back at you and says, see, I told you you shouldn't have taken these radical steps towards Jesus Christ. Now you're left holding the bag. All these people around you heard you bark about how faithful God was going to be, and you don't look that impressive. I had a girl. See, I've been preaching about the power of God for quite a few years now. And I had a girl in our midst that actually said to me, Eric, I don't see any power here. You know how hard that is? To have someone come up to you and say, you talk about power, but I don't see power. You know who's the biggest critic about Eric Ludy? Eric Ludy? I have no problem looking at my life and going, Jesus, I still don't look like uh, Paul the Apostle. What's wrong here? I desire fruit in my life. There's a statement in Revelation that says, you have a little strength. And that's like my scripture. I have a little strength. I have the very real thing of heaven on earth in a man. But it's, it's little. I don't want little. I have Elkanah, sure, but I want Samuel. I want the living prophet of old to come ushering forth out of this life for all this world to see and tremble. I want to be Elijah in this generation to be able to stand before the hordes of Israelites and be able to demonstrate the power of the Almighty God and have them say, the Lord, he is the God. I want to be a channel, a conduit for this world to see Jesus Christ. And I feel barren at times. So if you relate to that, we're all in this together. But barrenness is a channel, is an opportunity to prayer. God says, what are you feeling right now? Barren. He says, what do you do when you feel barren? I don't know. I can get frustrated, disappointed, discouraged. I can get depressed and just stay in bed all day. And he says, why don't we turn to 1 Samuel 1? And let's look at what Hannah did. Because this is the pattern. This is the pattern. The reason God chooses these stories, the reason barrenness is such a theme throughout Christian history, is because it leads men and women to prayer. And it's not just barrenness of the womb. It's barrenness in the sky, where the sky is not giving water. And if you're a farmer, this is serious business. So what do you do? You get on your knees. You cry out for the removal of what is shut up. Because if something is shut up in your life that is not supposed to be shut up, then you pray to see the heavens open. If anything is shut up in your life, whether it's the power of the Spirit of God at work within your members to prove that Jesus Christ died for you and that you died in him and sin no longer has power over you, because that's one thing that can be shut up, whether it's your womb, whether it's the fact that God has promised for you to be made whole and strong for the task of serving him and you're still weak and feeble in your ability to do it, whether it's financial and it seems like no matter what you do, the heavens are shut up and you don't have the ability to do anything to transact the gospel life in this world because you need resources. You need something. I mean, every day you have a few loaves and fishes, and you're like, how many days do I need to pray for multiplication? Couldn't you just give me the, the, enough to feed 5,000? Why do I always have to have a few fishes and a few loaves? Whatever it is that is shut up in your life, you go after it. That's the principle of this, and it's specific. When she prayed, she didn't just pray, God bless Elkanah and my, my family. Just general blessing, bless Israel. She was moved about a specific she cared about 
a very specific thing, and that was a son. And there is something you should be moved to pray specifically about too. Because God allows seasons of things being shut up in our life so that we will be moved to prayer to see his faithfulness. Do you think Hannah struggled with seeing the faithfulness of God in this situation? See, if she didn't struggle having children, do you think she would have recognized? Do you think Peninnah recognized the supernatural nature to conception? No, because it just seems very natural to her. It just happens. But when you're barren, and God has to prove in your life that he is the one that will unlock the womb, then who do you give the praise to? Not Elkanah, but Jesus. Not just the man who can provide what is needed for conception, but Jesus This is supernatural, and God wants your life to be hallmarked with a supernatural conception of life. That's what specific praying is all about. Okay, let's look at the next page, which is, I I know Sandy already peeked at it, so uh, we'll see if she can uh, still get the the rich uh, spiritual meat that's in this. Uh, That'll teach her to not peek, though. Okay, let's look through this list. What you see are five women, and I think there's more I just couldn't think of. Remember, this, this message came together in a matter of minutes. Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Hannah, Elizabeth. These are not smallish women in the Bible. Okay, Sarah is the wife of Abraham. If anyone's wife should be able to have children very easily, you would think it would be the wife of God's hallmark of faith. Think about that. I mean, just logically. If anyone should be blessed, it would be Sarah. And Sarah is barren. She cannot have children. Well, what, what's God up to? That doesn't make any sense. He could have picked anyone for Abraham to marry. He said he got a barren woman. What's he thinking? He's setting a precedent for the people of faith. When the, when the womb is shut, when the heavens are shut, you pray. And when I promise a child, you believe. That's the process. It starts at the very beginning of all the lineage that you flow out of because you're of the... You're of the lineage of Abraham, the people of faith. Rebecca. Well, who's Rebecca? Well, that's the next generation. That's Isaac's wife. Okay, so Sarah conceives and has Isaac, as the story goes. Now, we could go dig into just the story, and it would be profound. But we're going to skip over that. Rebecca is the wife of Isaac. So we're not getting off to a very good start here. In the whole lineage of faith, we start with Sarah. It's like, come on, God. Get your act together. Pick a better woman for this. I mean, pick someone who's fertile. Instead, we start out with Sarah, and then we get Rebecca, and Rebecca was hand-selected by God, and she's barren? Got to be kidding. This is not appropriate, God. God is establishing a precedent, and it's a precedent that you shouldn't be shocked at in your life. Why would the heavens be closed? Why am I barren? What's going on? Pray. Pray. I'm teaching you how to pray. There's a reason why God opens and closes the womb to train you how to pray. You need specifics in order to grow in your spiritual life. If everything just came to you, you wouldn't, first of all, recognize that it was God. And secondly, you wouldn't pray. And prayer is the discipline of the spiritual life which grows you up into the hall of fame of Christianity. Without it, you become a mediocre nothing in your spiritual life. Nothing. So cherish the fact that you find yourself shut up today in some area and then go after it in prayer. Rachel, by the way, is the next generation, the wife of, wait, 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 now I'm getting really confused, the wife of Jacob. That's really confusing looking at my list and trying to figure out who's the wife of who. So Jacob, now remember, this is our, the first three generations barren. 
Okay, so if God wanted to make a point, do you think he made it? He did. Yes, if you're barren, all of them had supernatural conception, every single one of them. In fact, one of my favorite scriptures is Rachel wrestling in prayer. Then suddenly she's conceived. She was barren, and she asked, she entreated her husband, who was, now this is very confusing, but it's Jacob, her husband, to pray for her, to pray for her womb. And it's one of those understatements of the Bible and says she conceived. But the point is, she had to go after it. Give me children or I die. One of the famous quotes in Scripture. Hannah conceived Samuel. Elizabeth, no small player in the whole host of, uh, of the witnesses that are, are watching today. Elizabeth is barren. And who does she conceive? One who Jesus Christ remarks as being one of the most amazing men to ever walk the earth. Prophet after prophet, leader after leader, some of the spiritual giants of the ages past all flowed out of this exact thing. You want something great to march forth out of your life. If you want an Isaac, a Jacob, a Joseph, a Samuel, a John the Baptist to be shaped and to usher forth and to march forth from your life, then cherish the fact that you something shut up today. Because when God shuts something up, that means he's in, the, he's in the process of forming a John the Baptist to come forth out of your life to change the world. Don't look at it as some penalty. Look at it as a privilege. Because when there's barrenness, there's opportunity. Okay, now this is 1 Kings. And just look at the first words. When heaven is shut up, now this is David speaking, and there is no rain because they have sinned against thee. If they pray towards this place and confess thy name and turn from their sin when thou afflicts them, then hear thou in heaven and forgive the sin of thy servants and of thy people Israel, that thou teach them the good way wherein they should walk and give rain upon thy land, which thou hast given to the people for an inheritance. If there be in the land famine, if there be pestilence, blasting, mildew, locust, or if there be caterpillar, if their enemies besiege them in the land of their cities, whatsoever plague, whatsoever sickness there be, what prayer and supplication soever be made by any man. Okay, now this list is quite comprehensive. Okay, you have crops, you need rain, you have pestilence in the land, you have disease, whatever it is. You bring your petitions to God. Now the reason you have these problems are, you know, there's all sorts of reasons why there could be. Whether it's sin in the land, whether it's sin in your life, or whether it's God just shutting it up to prove. Just sort of like Lazarus, the fact that he died and was in the ground for four days and he stinketh wasn't the result of the sin of Lazarus or the sin of Mary and Martha, but for the glory of God. There's all sorts of things that can cause something to look shut up in our life. But every single one of them is to bring us closer to Jesus Christ and to apply us to the work of, tra- of, of prayer. What prayer and supplication soever be made by any man or by all thy people Israel, which shall know every man the plague of his own heart and spread forth his hands toward this house, then hear thou in heaven thy dwelling place and forgive and do and give to every man according to his ways for whose heart thou knowest. For thou, even thou only, knowest the hearts of all the children of men, that they may fear thee all the days that they live in the land which thou gavest unto our fathers. I have a little uh, Greek word for you here. Now, this one... I think it looks like it says UK, which is sort of cool if you're uh, Britishly inclined. Uh, I know Annie is, so this is a really exciting word for you. Uh, but once you hear what it means, you might tremble a little before getting excited about UK. Uh, it's a very good meaning, but a very intense meaning. Look at this vow of consecration. Now, remember what Hannah did? She vowed unto consecration. She consecrated not just her own life, because you know how difficult it would be for a mom to give up 
uh, her son, I mean, okay, I'm not a mom. But for me as a dad to give up my son, I mean, that is a serious thing, to just turn him over to the temple of God, to Eli the high priest, and say, you raise him. Raise him in the fear and the admonition of God. That's serious stuff. So it was a consecration for both Hannah and a consecration, a literal setting aside of her son saying, he's yours, God. If you give me a son, he is yours. It's a vow of consecration. So the New Testament word for that is UK. That is the concept. Now, where is it used? It's used three times in Scripture in the New Testament. Paul uses it when he's talking about the fact that he went into the temple to fulfill a vow. It's a vow. And then we have those men in Acts who vowed to kill Paul. Well, that was a vow. It was a UK. It was a vow, and it's serious stuff in the soul, especially for a Hebrew. And then it's used in a very unusual spot in the context of prayer. In James 5, which is always proved to be one of the most debatable uh, scriptures in the Bible. Why it's debated, I'm not exactly sure. Uh, well, I am actually uh, very clear. But in, it's not because it's not clear. It's because it makes people uncomfortable. Okay, and that's, it, it's in the flow of basically saying, is anyone afflicted, you should pray. If anyone is uh, joyful, then he should sing a hymn. If anyone is sick, then he should come to the elders, and the elders will lay hands on him. You can understand why this is a little, uh, comp- you know, anything to do with divine healing makes everyone squirm. It's like, whoa, we don't talk about that around here. Then he should come to the elders. The elders will lay hand, hands on him. It says, the prayer of faith, well, I might as well read it, <laughs> is any who is sick among you, let him call the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up. All right, we'll just stop there. I'm, uh, the whole context is prayer. So you can look at that if you want, uh, if you want to test me on that. The whole context is prayer. Then it relates to Elijah and how he prayed. The word here, in this context, there's all sorts of mentions of prayer. But this word, when it says the prayer of faith shall save the sick, is not the same word in the Greek. It's UK. It's actually the vow of consecration of faith shall save the sick. Isn't that a bizarre statement? No one actually ever told me that. And so as I was studying that just this morning, that 15-minute period, God was hallmarking something to me. And that there is something that God is interested in to break forth what is shut up. And it involves a very serious commitment unto prayer. It's different. So there's two different kinds of prayer. And th- maybe this is a little of an advanced statement, but I'll say it anyways. For some of you, you might not understand it right now, but you can come to me later and say, remember when you made a statement? There's two different types of prayer. Prayer that doesn't necessarily involve you actively involved in seeing an answer. For instance, you hear about someone, some prayer chain, and they, they mention someone, and you sit down immediately, you gather around with the people that are there, and say, let's pray for them. But there is no commitment or vow of consecration unto actually being involved further, moving forward. It's perfectly fine. There's nothing wrong with that form of prayer, but there isn't any personal attachment to the ongoing fulfillment or the answer to that prayer. You participated in prayer that was general, in a, in a sense. You had a specific thing you were praying for, but you weren't wrestling to see it done. You had a temporary burden, if you will. Nothing wrong with it. But there's another sort of prayer. And it's the prayer that leads you to make a vow of consecration. To say, God, you've placed that on my heart. You've burdened me with this. I am not leaving this prayer until I see the answer. That is serious stuff. And it's actually somewhat scary. Eric starts to squirm whenever he gets close to this, which is why God has me speaking on it tonight. 
I had, I've had many, of, many times where I have consecrated myself unto a specific prayer. And sometimes it's lasted years. Okay, the Bible college is, is one of them. But there are different degrees of this. For instance, let me give you some illustrations. <clears throat> when I said that Reese Howells committed to praying all those months, I think it was 11 months, I'm not exactly sure if it was 13 hours a day, but it was something like that. It was a vow of consecration. He would enter into what he would always call a place of intercession or a place of abiding. And God would give him very specific things that he should do in that season. And he was committed and separated unto prayer. And the separation unto prayer, when he did it in faith, would work amazing wonders in this world. If you don't believe me, read the story. Reese Howell's Intercessor. One of the most moving tributes to the faithfulness and the power of God to answer prayer I have ever read, if not the greatest. It is deeply impacting. But it was a vow of consecration. Reese Howells would call it a place of abiding or a place of intercession. And he would oftentimes denote the fact that this was more than just general praying. This was very specific praying, and it was set-apart praying. I would like to challenge you to allow God to press you forward into a new dimension of praying. Not one-time praying, but being willing to say, God, show me. Is there anything you want me to commit myself unto? Here's the other thing I would encourage you to do. Do not bite off more than you can chew. Do not say, I'm going to commit to five hours of praying a day, and I will not stop praying until Obama is out of office. Okay, that's a big thing to bite off, and I would not tell you and encourage you to start with something like that. I would ask you to start with something bite-sized. God knows where you're at, and he will assign you something that is at your level, at the level of development that you have. In other words, you might not be used to praying five minutes. So don't commit to an hour a day, if you will. But I would ask you to begin to allow God to train you as an infant in prayer and grow you up and mature you unto an Olympian in prayer. And that doesn't happen overnight. You might esteem being Olympian in prayer, but don't attempt to be an Olympian in prayer. Attempt to be an infant if that's what you are. If you're an infant, you're struggling just with the basic things of mobility. And so that's the same with prayer. You're not used to this, and it's very taxing. Prayer is a challenging thing, just like any athletic event. And so when you're training, if you're not used to running 10 miles, the first time, if you just go straight out and try and run 10 miles, how will your body be feeling? You will be a heap on the ground. You will just be, you'll probably be in the emergency room. If you, haven't, if you have not run in a long period of time, your cardiovascular system is not ready for it. Your respiratory system is not ready for it. Your muscular system is not ready for it because it's going to affect every part of your body. It's a very aerobic activity. Your feet will have literally blisters and you won't be able to walk for probably a week. So if you were a running coach, you would say, okay, let's start with something reasonable. It's the same thing. If I'm a prayer coach, I'm going to say the same thing. God wants to train you to be an Olympian and you can become an Olympian, but start out with small things. One of the things that God has been pressing upon me is the willingness to enter into another set-apart season of prayer. I've, done the, I've had seasons like what Reese Howells has had, but not to the level that Reese Howells has had. In fact, Reese Howells' life, every time I read it, I get a little uncomfortable. I start to break out in a sweat because I sense God saying, I'm building you for this, Eric. There's certain things we don't really want to be built for. But I keep saying to God, do it. I want you to build me for this. Even though I'm gulping the whole time, I want God to build me for this. 
A few years ago, I, set up, I, I went through a set-apart season where I committed myself unto God, saying, God, I'm going to take this much time a day. For this period of time, I'm going to journal everything you do. I have never been hit so hard. I've been hit hard in my life. I've never been hit so hard as I was in that little stretch when I was doing that. So there's part of me that's a little gun-shy after that, because that was a serious commitment unto prayer. And it's like, how about I just have a general commitment unto prayer? I do my best every day, which I, you know, I work hard in prayer. So if I just do my best, isn't that good enough? Sure, there's nothing wrong with that. But I would like to encourage you. There is something found in these stories that I just gave you that is a nugget of truth. There is something extra powerful. Remember when Jesus comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration, there's this demoniac and they can't get the crazy demon out of him. And Jesus says, this kind only come out through prayer and fasting. It's the same principle. There's Jesus covenanted himself. He vowed unto God a commitment, a consecrated existence unto prayer. He lived what we're talking about. And whenever he came forth to command a demon out, it went out because he was prepared behind the scenes. There is a strength that God wants to give you, but oftentimes it comes through a set-apartness unto what we're talking about tonight. Now, this is an uncomfortable message. I seem to struggle with giving lighthearted messages. But I want to encourage you not to bite off too much, but to be willing to take a baby step forward and say, okay, God, what would that be for me? What would that look like for me? Not what it looks like for Reese Howells. Don't, 13 hours. Don't even consider that right now. Don't think three, four hours. Just think infant. Allow yourself to be where you're at. Don't try and be a superhero. Allow God to grow you up. Jesus Christ is born in a stable, known as you. And he's an infant, and he needs to grow up. So allow that process of maturity, spiritual maturity, to take place. Listen to this quote from E.M. Bounds, my, one of my, okay, he is my favorite, because uh, that's tough. Leonard Ravenhill is also a great voice on prayer, but E.M. Bounds just has it. Uh, this is in the context, he is saying this in regards to the concept of a vow, of consecration unto prayer. It says, prayer in its highest form of faith is that prayer which carries the whole man as a sacrificial offering, thus devoting the whole man himself and his all to God in a definite, intelligent vow, never to be broken in a quenchless and impassioned desire for heaven. That is, that is a good quote. That prayer in its highest form of faith now, you might not feel like you're ready for the highest form of faith. It's like, oh, I'm, hey, I was just struggling with the dinner prayer thing that you were talking about, Eric, in the beginning. You know, you were really rocking my world with that. There is more to be had. And like I said, you could write a massive encyclopedia on the idea of prayer. We are infants in the church today. But if this church is going to turn the corner and we're going to see awakening in this country before it's too late, we must ply ourselves to prayer. Not general praying, specific praying. And God will assign his church that battle. We will know as a body what needs to be prayed for. There will be a harmony amongst us. God will start us out and grow us up, but he wants to train us to be a battalion of prayers. An army that will go into this world and actually do his work in and through prayer. Yes, we do other work. We speak it, we live it in front of this, this world, but we must be grounded and founded in prayer. And so when that demoniac comes into our midst that cannot be cast out in any other way, we are not stymied and the word of God is not diminished in our generation. 
But we can stand and say nothing stands against the name of our God. He is all-powerful. We can demonstrate that. And it starts with us being willing to be set apart unto his purposes in prayer. It's scary. At a certain level, it's scary. It's scary to our flesh. Because we really like the freedom of not being bound to prayer. It's like we like the free-flowing relationship we can have with God. Oh, when I feel like it, I can pray. You don't have hardly anything in your life that is that way. In your work, could you imagine your free-flowing relationship with your work? It's like, oh, if I feel like working, I can work. Yeah, and you wouldn't get paid. You'd lose your job. But when it comes to spiritual things, we have no commitment. We have no construct or governance to it. And I'm saying that in God's kingdom, he desires to press us into that pattern. We're supposed to be about the Father's business. We have a job to do, and it's serious stuff. And I realize it's scary. It's easier to go to work for you know, some job down the street than it is to go to work for God. But I want you to know, God pays a lot better, and he pays in more than just money and resources. He pays in joy, peace, and triumph, victory over everything that would try and keep you down. Your God is the ultimate employer. But it's a little scary to give up your world and your life as you know it and be translated into the kingdom of his dear son. And to live and work and serve him with every fiber of your being. I recognize that there's a certain trembling that takes place within us, but there's nothing greater. I have tasted this. I'm giving you just my four-year testimony, okay, of giving myself and consecrating myself under a deeper level of prayer. It's not always easy. And prayer still at times can have a challenging edge to it. And there's times I have to still press through. But there has been so much of the beauty and the glory and the majesty in praying. And I've loved it. I've relished it. And there's been a robust realness to the, to the person of God in my life through this. As I've been separated unto Jesus Christ, sure, there's been a great battle. But there's been a great victor. And I am not under the thumb of what the enemy wants to do to me. I'm above it. And there's a swagger to it. There's a strength to it. And I want every single one of you to taste it, to have it in fullness. I'm going to finish with this story. In India, back in, some of you have heard of John Prainhide. John Prainhide was, I mean, his name was just John Hyde, but how do you get the nickname Prain? The guy would shut himself up. Talk about using the term shut up in a completely different way. He would shut himself up unto prayer to see what is shut up in heaven in all of India be opened. And I tell you what, if you can find the biography of John Prane Hyde, it's not as well written as some other biographies, but it is so powerful. It's, the way it's described is if you want to take a peek into this man's prayer closet, which is one of the things that all of us are wondering, what does real praying look like? What this book is, it's a compilation of all these people that prayed with him. And they describe what it was like praying with John Prane Hyde. It is so impacting. Who's, who's read that, by the way? Okay, that, It's a great book, just not as well written as some other biographies. But it's a great peek into the depths of prayer. John Hyde had something that God was doing in him. And he had this exact concept of a vow. This is what he lived with. He consecrated himself unto prayer. Whenever there was a convention, they had these one, the Silkion, I think it was, uh, convention in India every year. 
John Hyde would lead the troops of intercessors to pray multiple months beforehand. All throughout the, uh, the conference, he would pray, and he would not even get any sleep for an entire week. The guy would just be up praying all night long. It's just incredible stories of supernatural endurance. The guy literally died in his 40s of a heart condition where his heart, from extreme anxiety, because he would carry the burden of the lost for, for India, but his heart moved from one side to the other. And the doctor's like, you can't do whatever you're doing, you have to stop doing. And his friends are saying, you need to stop doing this. It's too intense. He's I'm going to die with my boots on. If I could die praying, can you think of any other better way to die? And he did. He died praying. This is how this guy gave himself for the lost. So God, he covenanted with God, and God said, I will give you one soul a day in India. Isn't that an interesting thing? You pray, and I will give you one soul a day in India. India is hard soil to get a conversion, let alone 365 conversions in a year. How many conversions have you gotten in America this past year? Yeah, this is in India. A lot tougher soil. This is tough soil. Tougher soil. And he did. I mean, it was like 350, uh, I'm sorry, 375 or something in his first year. He proved it. Unbelievable. The second year, you know what God says? Two souls a day. Now, here's the interesting thing. It was a covenant relationship where he was vowing unto God and God was vowing unto him. There was a promise transacted where he says, I give myself unto an abiding relationship of prayer with you, God, and in exchange, I make myself available to go out and find those souls. Think about that. He was the one leading them to Christ. Some of the most extraordinary stories because when he got to year three, it was three souls a day. Three souls a day. Could you imagine waking up in the morning going, there are three souls in India that are going to find Jesus today on promise from God. And every single time he had him. And there were some extraordinary stories where it's getting late at night and he's on this trip across, uh, he has his guide with him in India and it's very rude to just sort of show up at someone's house. Well, there was, I don't know if that was the rude thing. He came in and he was getting a meal at someone's house. And then it was, it was sort of polite for them to leave at a certain time. But there were only two conversions in that house. There had to be someone else. And so he violated a certain protocol in India, and he said, there has to be someone else here uh, because someone else needs to be saved. We're getting pretty late. <laughs> Can you imagine having that attitude? Sure enough, there was one more person, and they got saved. Unbelievable stories. But here's my point. A vow unto God is also a God vow unto you. There is an exchange of promise where you commit yourself unto God, and God says, all of me is at your disposal. And one soul a day is what he had faith for. God only taxes us and tests us to the level we have faith. And he had faith for 365 souls that year. And that's, that's an amazing amount of faith that I don't know that I could say I have in America. Is that I could go out the highways and byways of America and find one soul a day guaranteed from God. That's big stuff. Let alone 700 and, what is that, 730? <sighs> How about multiplying that? I don't know. How many a day did he get up to? Do you remember hearing that? Four? (laughs) That's just extraordinary. I get sort of weighted down by the thought of it. But he had a job to do the entire time. He still had to go out and get those souls. God will give you everything you need to turn this world upside down. But there's a job that you have in it. There's part of us that wants to hide in the closet and just sort of throw out prayers and say, God, change the world. He says, I need to change it through you. Not just your prayers, but your obedience, your willingness to go out and be the answer to your prayers. It's an amazing thought. Let's pray. Oh, Father.
Make us a praying church. I pray that you would share with us your burden and that you would bring us to that point of covenant, of consecration, of seriousness where we say, I'm yours. I'm bought with a price. I'm no longer my own. Give us those specifics, Lord. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would do this gently, that you would not overwhelm us. We are delicate and fragile infants, and I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would mature us and grow us up to be strong, lion-hearted for the task of delivering the gospel to this generation. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you're gentle, that you're kind, that you're good. It's in the precious name of our King that we pray these things. Amen.